Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and this is episode six of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. As a reminder, All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to this series, The format for these episodes is a little different than normal. It features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event, and in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you can all take, ways to continue the conversation, some relevant resources, and our commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. This conversation explores the topics introduced in the film Coded Bias with invited panelists Shalini Kantaya, Timnit Gebru, and Meredith Broussard. Shalini Kantaya is the director of the film Coded Bias, which follows MIT Media Lab researcher Joy Bualamwini's startling discovery that many facial recognition technologies fail more often on darker-skinned faces, and it delves into an investigation of widespread bias in artificial intelligence. Meredith Broussard is the author of Artificial Unintelligence, and she is also a data journalism professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. Finally, Timnit Gebru is the co-lead of the Ethical Artificial Intelligence team at Google. This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans' David Ryan Polgar, and the organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Shalini, I want to start off with you because when we're watching this film, it kind of fits within the, uh, I guess, the, 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 the um, maybe the section that you might see, like The Great Hack, or right now, uh, also on Netflix, you have The Social Dilemma. But when I watched uh, Code of Bias, it seems a little different. In particular, uh, all of the voices that you feature are uh, women, uh, and, then, and then also a, a good percentage of women uh, of person of color. So I'm just curious uh, when you tackle this film, Coded Bias, because obviously a film takes a great deal of planning and preparation to get done. I'm curious about your your motivation uh, behind Coded Bias and also what are you hoping to accomplish with this uh, release that we're celebrating uh, this weekend? What what are you hoping that people really take away? Well, first of all, thank you so much, David. Um, I just want to cordially welcome everyone uh, to the New York theatrical premiere of Coded Bias. I am absolutely thrilled to finally be able to share um, the voices in this film with you. Um, I want to especially thank the Metrograph Theater in my home city of New York uh, for for giving us this incredible platform to have this, um, to share the film and to have the conversation and just say how much I miss seeing your faces. And I can't wait to (laughs) be back in the cinema with you, um, especially one as cool as the Metrograph. So um, thank you all for being here and um, making time to engage in this conversation. Um, I, I like two years ago, I didn't know what an algorithm was. Um, I think every now you do. Now you're yeah, you're deeply involved now. <laughs> um, yes, I've said I've said a little bit of time thinking about it between then and now. Um, but I think everything. I was a sci-fi fanatic. I'm a filmmaker and a sci-fi fanatic, and everything I knew about AI was sort of from the mind of Stanley Kubrick or Steven Spielberg, this kind of imagination about um, artificial intelligence. And I love tech, and um, uh, a lot of uh, all all of my work, in some ways, has to do with disruptive technologies mm-hmm. and how they impact the marginalized, whether they make the world more fair or less fair and for whom. Um, And so I sort of 
stumbled upon a TED talk by Joy Bellamwini and um, uh, read the book Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, and then subsequently uh, a book called Algorithms of Rhythms of Oppression by Sophia Noble, and subsequently um, Artificial Unintelligence by Meredith Broussard, and sort of stumbled down this rabbit hole of this sort of dark underbelly of big tech. And I think that what was so alarming to me in the making of this film is I did not really realize the extent to which human beings uh, were already outsourcing our autonomy to machines, um, making such decisions about who gets what quality of healthcare, who gets um, hired, um, how long um, a prison sentence someone serves. And um, I sort of stumbled my way in because even though all of my films have been somewhat political, I um, they always start with a character. And for me, it was with Joy Bellamwini and her discovery of racial bias and artificial intelligence. And... Um, through that sort of uncover widespread bias uh, throughout and, and, and sort of um, what I realized in the making of this film is that this is where the battle for civil rights will happen in the 21st century, I believe, because um, every sector of civil society will be transformed by AI is already being transformed for by AI. And so I'm really grateful um, to the sort of brilliant and badass cast of the film for sort of giving us an education, people like Meredith and Tamid, who are really um, bridge people who are able to uh, break down, who have like the the, the magic power, the magic superpower of the scientific method in order to like sort of understand these systems and how they work and yet have this other perspective as someone who maybe was not, whose experience wasn't always centered, was, you know, somehow on the margins. And because of that has this sensitivity, has this empathy, has this um, humanity, this perspective that they're bringing to, um, AI. And so I'm really grateful because I feel like the film was such a challenge to sort of discern these brilliant um, data scientists and mathematicians and journalists and activists and trying to break down the science and also connect it to, to the people whose um, lives this has real implications um, for opportunity and for civil rights. And um, and so uh, what was the second part of your question? <laughs> well, the, well, that was that was great right there. We're yeah. also talking about, especially with the theatrical release uh, yeah. right now. Uh, what, what are you hoping that people really oh, one, so we should happy. celebrate? But what are you what are you hoping that people really take well, take away? I, I'm so grateful um, to this cast for the education that they they gave me. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to be able to share a story about the technologies that will define our future, um, told predominantly through the lens of women and people of color. I feel like we have uh, had this spectacular lack of imagination about these technologies and how they can be used because they've been developed and even our imagination and our stories and our science fiction around them have been developed. Um, by a, a small group of people. And I think for me, I, I feel like um, I learned that there are other ways that this can work besides surveillance capitalism. There are other models and um, the people on this panel can talk a little bit much to much more <laughs> extent about that. But I, I will say um, that I feel honored and privileged to share the stories in the film um, because they're stories of everyday people who are making real change in the world. And it's my hope that people, I, I'm so grateful to be able to share the film with the public because it's my hope that people will feel empowered 
to talk about um, that they don't have to have an advanced degree to talk about these technologies that influence us all. And also that it will engage people to be active citizens in, um, and sort of making sure that these, that AI and codes are, um, our values, our democratic values. And, and I'm so grateful to this panel because everyone on this panel is actively involved in, um, building a culture that honors the inherent value of every human being in technology, sometimes technology. And, and so that's what I'm sort of very interested in is how we use ethics and inclusion to build, to extend human rights culture in, in, into, um, into tech. Yeah. How we well, well, and, and I certainly want to do my part to, to congratulate you because uh, definitely uh, in, in my space with All Tech is Human, I've seen firsthand uh, the importance to have uh, some type of common experience, especially like a, like a film like this, where people can, can really talk about some of these issues. And that's actually where I want to take this, this conversation. Uh, uh, it really uh, reminds me of something that I heard, uh, Meredith, you, you say on an earlier um, discussion around coded bias, and you were talking about your background as a journalist and that issues around algorithmic bias uh, and uh, some of the issues that we deal with, uh, freedom of mind and, and social media, they're oftentimes hard to illustrate. And then, uh, you know, especially also, uh, Shani, as uh, as a filmmaker, you're you're trying to kind of showcase a, a story and then get the viewer involved. It seems like uh, a lot of these issues are always very tricky to to create a visualization, right? It seems like when we when we have uh, AI, we have to show a picture of Pepper the robot or Sophia the robot or Terminator, right? So we we sometimes lack an ability to uh, to to kind of visualize this, which is important because visualization creates uh, maybe a, a potential need of, of why we, we need to do something. Like for, for uh, climate change, we can actually see uh, you know, melting ice caps or we can see the harm that, that's being done. So uh, Meredith, we'd love to, love to hear your, your opinion about this is if we're talking about actually improving the, the status quo, getting more people actively involved in, in this space, what do you think we can can do to to build upon uh, the release of coded bias to to help people understand the importance of a lot of these issues? Because I think to a lot of people, they almost assume that that technology is outside of human control, that it's something that maybe pops down from the the heavens, set it and forget it, Ron Popeil style. But it, but in fact, uh, as you point out, we're encoding our own human biases inside of the technology. Uh, and that's also why even uh, All Tech is Human, that's why we even chose that that name to keep that sense of agency. So Meredith and then Antony, I'll bring you in on this discussion. Love to hear what you think we can do moving forward. So uh, thanks for having me first. Uh, and in terms of talking about technology, uh, lots of people are intimidated by technology. Uh, they feel like technology is something that they have to kind of, you know, close their eyes and accept it, uh, or like it's medicine you have to take. But we have a voice in creating technology. We have a voice in creating technology that, as Shalini said, is consistent mm -hmm. with our democratic values, with our values as a society. Uh, and so as a data journalist, I'm very committed to empowering people to understand how technology works, how it doesn't work for many populations, and uh, helping people to understand that you have a voice. Um, I think one of the things that Shalini does beautifully in the film is she brings to life these very complicated issues. Because artificial intelligence is hard to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to uh, I used to go to say a cocktail party and people would say, "Oh, what do you do?" And I'd say, "Oh, I work on algorithmic ethics." And you know, three years ago, this would get you like a blank stare, and maybe the person would like wander off. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a relief that now uh, you can say, "Oh, I work on algorithmic ethics," and people are like, "Oh yeah, I have heard of that." Uh, so the tech lash has really taken hold. People are thinking about. Uh, socio-technical issues as being very nuanced. 
And so I'm really pleased that uh, that coded bias is out there now and that it offers us so many opportunities to talk about uh, decisions that are being made on our behalf using technology that are not necessarily decisions that we agree with. And then to meet, uh, you, you're currently at Google, you know, formerly also with, with Microsoft, and then you have Meredith, who's at NYU. Uh, sometimes there seems to be a gap between uh, academia and, and industry. Uh, with a lot of your work, how do, how do you think we can go about kind of operationalizing AI ethics? So, you know, um, I had given a talk recently um, at a conference called a symposium called Baylearn. And it, my keynote was about the hierarchy of knowledge. So my keynote was about the hierarchy of knowledge and machine learning and its consequences. And so what I mean by that is in technology, so going back to your question, what Meredith said and Shalini said, um, why are people intimidated? Or why aren't so many people involved? Or why are some of the of work that why some of the scholarship that especially black women have been doing from for a long time why has it been sidelined and i think it's because of the hierarchy of knowledge and that so that comes in many forms right so i was listening to uh this um conversation with ruha and meredith um where ruha was saying that you know there's so many coding camps for um i'm sorry yeah there's so many coding camps we always talk about how we always have to have coding camps but I've never heard of like a social science camp for technologists or computer scientists or something like that, right? And it's true. And I and you're not, you know, there is this hierarchy of knowledge and there's a certain way that you have to be in that people call the view from nowhere. And so even if you have certain intuitions and a certain lived experience and certain things you want to bring to the table, you're discouraged from completely doing that because then you become discredited. And so um, for me, it took me a long time to, um, Oh, sorry, I was just distracted by that chat and then, um, <laughs> I like my dog right here. But for me, it took me a very long time to um, to kind of go past that and be like, okay, whatever, you know, I have my, my pedigrees and stuff, so you can't discredit me. But that to me is, so the reason I wanted to bring this up is that I don't necessarily believe the dichotomy between academia and industry is that big because there is an underlying foundation that comes from both where you learn this hierarchy of knowledge in academia. And many of the researchers in industry go back and forth. Their students are interns in industry, then they, the, they, they do grants together, they, you know, and, and things like that. So I don't see this dichotomy as much. The there's this underlying foundational paradigm, I think that exists in both places that in my opinion is problematic. And so even when people talk about how to regulate industry or how to move forward or something like that, many times I don't see the difference between being between academics versus people in industry. I see it more as disciplinary differences or, mm -hmm. um, you know, it could be like people of color or the black women who've been working on this for so long versus others. So so that's sort of how I, how I feel about that. And so in, in terms of operationalizing it, I think there are a number of things. One of the things I'm actually trying to do in my team is bring in knowledge from people like Meredith mm -hmm. and people who are not usually, you know, who are not usually at the tech companies because either they're, you know, they, there is not, you know, historically either they've been considered like as enemies or something like that or not the typical, you know, white male coder kind of thing. And it's been really hard to do that, but we finally at least have um, a number of people on our team bringing that kind of perspective. And then the question is how to make sure that their knowledge is considered equal to to everybody else's knowledge. Um, and then then there's other like just process oriented things, some other technical things. But for me, the, that that is for me the foundation. Okay. That 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 hierarchy of knowledge is the foundation. Yeah. And then Meredith, I'm going to ask you a question, then I'm going to start incorporating some of our audience questions. So again, for anybody listening, uh, please just uh, send us over your questions. We'll try to incorporate as many as we can. But Meredith, uh, as I mentioned, have a background uh, as a journalist. How do you think that background uh, informs your current thinking uh, about uh, AI ethics, specifically around algorithmic bias, uh, and then how you wrote your book? Uh, you know, how do you think this has kind of shaped your worldview? Because there's a lot of talk about incorporating more multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary type of type of thinking. 
So I actually started my career as a computer scientist and I quit to become a journalist. And I, I worked at an elite tech firm uh, and I quit because of all of the textbook reasons that you hear about that uh, push women out of STEM careers. Uh, and it was, it was a while ago, uh, you know, more years ago than I care to admit. Uh, and it was a, it was a different time. I am so heartened by the fact that today we have uh, people like Tim Neat leading the charge inside tech companies uh, and doing amazing work and uh, bringing in women, bringing in people of color, uh, talking about intersectional issues because that was not the case when I started my career. Uh, I became a journalist because the gender balance was better in journalism uh, and because I could do interdisciplinary work. Uh, so as a data journalist, what I do is I, I tell stories with numbers. I use numbers to tell stories. Uh, and I write code. Uh, I write AI systems in order to commit acts of investigative journalism. Uh, so it's very, very interdisciplinary. Uh, and I like it because I get to draw on social science. I get to draw on machine learning. Uh, and I get to discern truth wherever it happens to be. Um, Joy's, uh, Joy's project that, uh, that Shalini follows in the film is a particular inspiration uh, because Joy brings together so many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, she is an artist, she's a poet, she's a musician, she's a computer scientist, uh, she's an amazing thinker. And you really have to think on multiple different levels in order to bring together all of the strands that go into a research project like Joy did. And then to go back to what Timnit mentioned before, uh, Joy's doing this against a backdrop of, you know, of, well, let's just say it, like against a backdrop of racism and sexism mm -hmm. uh, in the discipline. So there is indeed a hierarchy of knowledge. Uh, one of the dirty secrets of mathematicians is that mathematicians can be terrible snobs. Uh, there's this privileging of uh, mathematical ways of thinking over, uh, say, qualitative ways of thinking. And this stretches back centuries. Uh, there's also an image of who can be a mathematician. Uh, it's mostly white men. And then computer science is a descendant of mathematics. And so computer science has this snobbiness as well. And we can see the gender bias and the racial bias of elite math reflected in elite computer science. And the elite computer scientists are the people leading the big tech companies today. So it's a kind of inequality that gets reproduced inside corporations that comes from academia, um, as Timnit said, and it's something that we do need to address mm -hmm. uh, in order to make a better world with technology. Yeah, well, and then hopefully that's uh, with the release of Code of Bias, making a big difference. And that's uh, one of the questions that we're gonna incorporate pretty soon. But Timnit, uh, one of the scenes of Code of Bias that really struck me was a scene that was between uh, Joy, Deb, and then I think you were on Skype or Google Meet or something. Uh, and and, and really uh, in that scene, uh, unfortunately, even though you had this incredibly uh, important research that was being presented, the discussion was that, uh, being a person in color kind of put, uh, put all of the research kind of in a, a more difficult position to, to have it uh, gain traction. So have you noticed any changes over, over the past couple of years? And if not, what do you, what do you think really needs to, to be done? And obviously code of bias is, is one important step in this. I've seen, you know, I have to be a little bit optimistic for a second or before, you know, cause things are not great, but but I have seen a big amount of change in the last couple of years. And first of all, I didn't, I know a lot more people who've been working on this for a very long time now, like Meredith, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, when I met Joy, I think we met in 2016 or something like that. Neither of us have had known about each other or something. The only thing I knew was that Joy was doing this, um, uh, this TED talk. She had this TED talk and I'm like, oh my God, I, I want to work with you on whatever you're doing. And, you know, she was doing a master's at MIT at that time. It was basically me and her. And I was advising her as a PhD student at Stanford. I didn't tell my advisor I was working on this or anything <laughs> like that, you know? And so, and I think people didn't really understand exactly why we're doing it. And our reviews for the paper were like, yeah, you know, sure. But results are not that surprising, that kind of stuff, right? And then once once her, her work came out and I... I, I exactly agree with what Meredith was saying. I, I always say this in my talk to in the hierarchy of knowledge talk as well, where the, the, the reason it has impact is because she made sure that, you know, she didn't just go from paper to paper or something like that. She did everything, spoken word, art exhibition, you know, the documentary that Shelly no. has, activism. So that was in that in that clip that you're talking about. Um, Joy and uh, Deb, Deb was the first author of this follow-up paper, had a follow-up paper. And it, one of the things it showed is was that Amazon's recognition tool could have similar biases to what we showed in, in the uh, first paper. And that wasn't even the central point of the paper, but that came out and VP after VP was attacking them. And um, and my co-lead Meg Mitchell and I spent like a whole month assembling a rebuttal for what they were saying. We had all of these academics, um, you know, write a letter and we had a point by point rebuttal and spent a month and then we uh, put it out in the press and we wrote an anonymous letter and I was worried I might get fired for it. But I told my manager, I was like, well, I'm going to do this. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he recommended that we don't put our names, uh, author names, because he didn't want it to be a Google versus Amazon thing or whatever. He said, you can just have like a, a, a letter of sig signatories, you know, so what needed to happen we all needed to support each other we i had to have a supportive manager you know we had to have support of the community by then joy had you know algorithmic justice league we had black mm -hmm. ai um which you know um i remember a few years ago before deb was a superstar she sent me an email she was like <laughs> yeah back before you know she sent me an email she was like you know I would have let, I, I came when I found Black and I at New York, you know, I was ready to leave that whole industry, tech industry, like what Meredith said, right? So many things had to happen, but I think we are at least in a place where we sort of can survive and hold, and kind of support each other and draw inspiration from the people who came before us. But it is such a constant struggle you know it's like a, a constant swimming upstream yeah. um, but I, I do see more awareness and i do see a lot more involvement of you know people like the aclu and many other um, civil society groups uh, which i didn't see a few years ago well that's actually the question that i want to uh, incorporate in uh, one of the audience questions uh, there's a scene in in coded bias where you see, uh, you know, Joy actually reaching some bipartisan agreement, which was pretty interesting with uh, AOC and Jim Jordan. Uh, I probably don't agree on much, but that was a fascinating scene uh, of the film. And then having Kathy O'Neill uh, visit as well. So one of the questions uh, says, uh, are we seeing more activism from young people with the release of this, this film uh, and The Social Dilemma? Any tips on starters and best practices for this type of activism? So Meredith, do you have any uh, thoughts about this? What, what changes are you seeing, especially around young people with your, your involvement at NYU and, and other individuals that you're connected with? So one of the things that I direct people to is uh, actually the resource list on uh, Shalini's Coded Bias website. Uh, she's done a really good job of uh, of kind of putting up a reading list and also a list of organizations who are doing uh, really good work in this uh, in this area. Uh, I would point to uh, Joy's organization, the Algorithmic Justice League. I would point to Tim Neat's organization, Black and AI. Uh, Kathy O'Neill, as you mentioned, I, who is amazing in the film, uh, has an algorithmic auditing uh, firm called Orca risk management. Um, there is Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, Sophia runs a research center, uh, C2I2, out mm -hmm. of uh, UCLA. They have a lot of great resources. Uh, 
basically just reading your way through the uh through the works of the awesome women in the film uh is a great way of getting started yeah uh amy webb's book big nine is really important uh zainab's book twitter and tear gas mm -hmm. like one of the things that was so fun about being in this film is that these are uh, some of the other women in the film are some of the women who I admire most in the industry, uh, who I would most like to uh, hang out with uh, at any given moment. Uh, and so uh, it's really just it's a pleasure. And not only just the the women you admire most, I can tell from uh, All Things Human, we get a lot of email requests about who we should have on our live stream, and all the names, uh, the people featured in that film, uh, Code of Bias, are all people that are they're heavily influential, especially for a college grad student audience. So I see it from my perspective how important this is. So Timnit, I'd love to kind of bring you in on this. What are you seeing on your end in terms of the change in in activism? Um. I always think that the undergrads are ahead of everybody else in, let's say, in an academic institution. Um, so like when I visit or something like that, they always tell me they're trying to have reading groups or some sort of class, but the professors are just not, you know, like in, they should in come a take my class. <laughs> that's, so that's what I was going to say was my one of my um, advices or I, I can't, I don't think that's a word, but my advice, <laughs> my advice would be a lot of times what happens is some of these classes are not uh, offered as, let's say, if you're in computer science or in engineering as an engineering class, mm -hmm. I would demand that these classes are offered and, and they should be required classes in my opinion. Um, for anybody who's going to get a degree and go, you know, to any company or whatever and, and work on these types of models. And so Nikki Washington has a class in at Duke that I, I really, really like. Sorry, my dogs are about to go crazy. Stop, please. Sorry. Um, and, um, and Ruha Benjamin had a, had a, has a class at Princeton too. Meredith has one. And so these classes Sorry, These classes should be required. That's that's one thing I would say, because okay. I feel like a lot of the undergrads are trying, but the institution is way behind uh, the times. And another pattern I'm seeing that I do not like is that there are these classes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, your dog doesn't like this pattern either. No, what they're doing is they're fighting for the couch space. <laughs> no, I think I think your dogs want to join in on the fight for a better yeah, better tech future. So we but, welcome everyone and and all animal life. One other thing I was gonna say, um, I really was gonna make this. Oh yes, a pattern I really don't like uh, is that now they've decided we need ethics, uh, but we need philosophy. And so they're having these classes with philosophy, which is the the most white male centric, you know, discipline after um, probably more than computer science. What you need is not that. Well, we need people who do intersectional studies, feminist studies, mm -hmm. race and gender studies, queer studies, and indigenous studies, uh, disability studies. That's the kind of stuff I want to see in classes. So please, not this, you know, uh, two white men teach you, one of them being philosopher or tech te tech ethics and one of them being computer science. That's not what I, I think the, the way forward is. Well said. So Shalini, I'd love to bring you in on this, uh, especially with the activism. I know, uh, you know, again, with the release now of Coded Bias, uh, it seems to be that you're, you're kind of tying this in, seeing this um, intersection of, of AI with, with civil rights, maybe this new kind of algorithmic uh, civil, civil rights. So I'd love to hear more about what you're hoping for that, right? This kind of the digital rights uh, that, you're, that you're pushing. Yes, we're launching um, just a framework. You can sign it at um, codedbias.com backslash sign. And it's a declaration of data rights as human rights. And we don't have any laws here in the States. And, you know, as I said in the opening, this is really going to, what I hope is that it gives people a basic framework to talk about this in a way that uh, draws the link between um, data and civil and human rights. And mm -hmm. so the Declaration of Basic Rights, a lot of it was informed by lawyers in the UK who are data rights lawyers and uh, uh, pulled from language from the GDPR. Mm -hmm. um, but what I hope is that um, 
people will start to educate themselves so that we can start to push for policy on these issues. We just need some legislation. And I think for me, I'm sort of a little bit pragmatic. Like I really am hopeful about a lot of these, about local legislation being the way that sort of tips the scale towards um, a federal ban. Like I'm, I'm very heartened by Massachusetts passing a state ban on um, facial recognition technology. You know, first cities, you, first you saw cities, you know, the first, and, and ironically, the, first, the, the most technologically for the technology hubs were the first to ban Facebook. <laughs> because like, they know it so well. They know they what know it can do. So well. <laughs> um, San Francisco, Oakland, Cambridge, and others. And then you saw the local then go to the first state. And for the first time now, we have, um, thanks to the work of Tim Neath and Joy and Deborah Raji, who put their academic reputations on the on the line to prove that this stuff had racial bias, um, and because of um, um, engaged citizenry in the streets, mm -hmm. I feel like um, we have the first also ban um, on the table of federal use of facial recognition, which would I believe extend to ICE and and the FBI. So I think it would be a real step forward. Um, I, I think there's also some legislation in California on the table. And my understanding is like, whenever someone gets rights in this space, it sort of creates a culture shift. Like I, I'm of the belief is that it, it sort of happens in waves like that. And so I think like, I, I know like Illinois has some legislation and, mm -hmm. and companies will not want to make separate legislation for each state. And I feel like if, if we can just start to pass local legislation and local bans and, you know, those of us who work at universities can pass, you see students banning facial recognition on their campuses. And I feel like there are all kinds of ways to engage. And then the other thing is like, there's just amazing organizations doing fantastic work in this field, you can support an organization yeah. like Black and AI or the Algorithmic Justice League or the ACLU, Mi Gente, um, so many others that are doing just incredible work um, in the field on, on so many levels, from culture to, to legislation and, and, and strategic. So I really think, um, but for me as a, as a culture maker, I, I feel like I want to make science fiction. I want <laughs> understand this stuff. I want us to, um, for me, the big cultural shift is around education and around, um, you know, I had fear when I first started, you know, I, I didn't know if I was going to misuse the language of this. And, and um, you don't know if you're going to be embarrassed about like, when you engage with something you don't have advanced degrees with. And I think the more that we can empower ourselves with some basic vocabulary to understand the technology that impacts our lives, all of us, and it shouldn't, that knowledge shouldn't be in the hands of the few. Yeah. Uh, in order for us to make, we've seen through these crises, the importance of science education and how we have to communicate it so that we can translate that into responsible public policy and govern. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that is why I'm so grateful um, to this panel for like sort of being those bridge people who have such integrity in the science, but then also can translate it. Be, be bridge people to translate that and to activists who then take it and and you hear Trine, um, you guys were so brave in doing that and of course three major corporations then changed their complete policy towards uh sale of facial recognition to law enforcement you know um game changing um but also that people like Trine moran who when her um, landlord was trying to install facial recognition, drew from Joy's research because she could read it. It wasn't some scientific method where, you know, some link, you know, jargon where she couldn't read it. She like, Joy translated it in a way where activists could then use that to empower themselves um, against predatory practices. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's kind of the bridge that we need to make if we're going to make change. 
Terrific. And then you mentioned earlier kind of the the, the need for, for legislation uh, on a state or local level. It's one of the questions that I love to, to incorporate. I think it's also uh, kind of uh, reminds me of some of the work, uh, Meredith, that you had, especially your recent New York Times uh, op-ed where you talked about the incident in the UK around uh, algorithms kind of uh, tilting people and, and affecting their, their uh, trajectory uh, for, for some of their testing. Uh, the question is, are you familiar with the bills introduced in New York and California to regulate the use of algorithmic employment decisions? And do you think these bills are a step in the right direction? So we're talking about algorithmic employment decisions. Ooh, I have so much to say about this. I... Uh... I, I don't know if I should say it because I might uh, start talking and use up the entire rest of the panel. <laughs> uh, here's what I will say. Uh, I am just, I am here. I am ready to write AI regulation. I am ready to draft the policy. Just like, I'm here. I'm ready. I want to do it. Good. Uh, and we're at this really interesting point where everybody agrees that we need regulation. Even Facebook has a post up on their blog saying, here's our proposed regulation for you know, combating uh, misinformation. Now, I don't actually think that we should let Facebook write the regulation because tech companies regulating themselves is what got us into this mess in the first place. Uh, so you know, I, I think that uh, you know, people who are not in the position to make billions of dollars should maybe write the regulation. Uh, so yes, Shalini's absolutely right that regulation is what we need. What's going on in California uh, is a mess. Uh, Uber and Lyft just spent, I think it was billions of dollars in wow. order to quash uh, a measure that would have uh, made Uber and Lyft drivers considered employees uh, instead, they spent these many millions uh, and uh, used their market power to uh, keep the drivers classified as contractors. Uh, I personally think this is terrible uh, because these are clearly employees and deserve uh, the protections that employees get. Uh, I guess, uh, Tiffany, do you have any uh, anything else to add on that about what you're seeing on the uh, legislative uh, side? Because I know a, a, a hot topic of conversation is always the disconnect sometimes between uh, our legislative body, which tends to skew a little little bit older. Uh, there's obviously the famous scene that we had a couple of years ago on, in, uh, with uh, Zuckerberg, right, uh, having to explain that he sells ads. Uh, Right. So that's a, you know, more of a comical scene, but that's, that's obviously a, a topic of discussion, right? How can we maybe bridge that divide if we, if we need more legislation? I, I mean, I, I, but there are plenty of other people who can be drawn upon, like Meredith was saying, who mm -hmm. are not those two extremes. Uh, so I think it's, you know, it's, there are so many stakeholders that the, um, the people renting, uh, who were, you know, the Brooklyn uh, rent up uh, the landlord? Uh, yeah. the, what Shalini was talking about? I can't mm -hmm. like so. You know, those people should be at the table, right? I, I, I oftentimes it's it's the you know the either civil, people in civil society representing somebody or academics or people in industry or something. I really want people who are actually affected by these things who know firsthand um, how it's been harming them to be at the table. When, when these kinds of legislations are crafted. Sometimes what I hear is there could be a uh, an opposite effect. Like for example, I don't know if this is true, but I remember reading somewhere when GDPR came out, the stocks of large companies like Facebook and Google went up and the ones of smaller companies went down because there are larger companies have more resources to comply. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's kind of something that it should be it doesn't mean there shouldn't be regulation right but that is something that should be also figured out in in conjunction right it, are, you shouldn't be punishing uh people with smaller number of resources while while trying to curb the influence of the huge huge companies um so yeah and so i don't believe that tech companies should be writing uh okay. 
think anybody from Google is watching right now. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I Dirk definitely. Who's watching? Who are we kidding? You know, so <laughs> actually there was a question from, from the audience that was saying, you know, um, how can we, you know, tech companies are usually looking at profit. Yeah. And how can we um, educate them about AI ethics or some, 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 some question similar yes. along those lines. And so sometimes I give the example of when it came to face surveillance, right? Um, I, at Google, they didn't put, they hadn't put out a general purpose face recognition system. Uh, and they hadn't put out a general purpose, a, a gender, automatic gender recognition system. And that was good because it means that they didn't have to stop doing it later. Right. But so what are you going to bet when you're making the case? You're like, well, it's not you're not saying like, oh, we launched X, Y and Z. We made X, Y and Z. You're, you're trying to show, well, you know, this, these other companies are doing that. But so because of our work, you were able not to have to do this. So we try to make points like that. But I think journalists are usually they play a big role in this space because unfortunately, a lot of tech companies the way they see what's important, what's not important is like what has PR attention, what has, you know, pressure from the outside. It can be very hard sometimes to think about, to tell people that something is really important. They should spend some time on it. Right right now, I'm really worried about hate speech and misinformation in the Ethiopian context and then the larger African context, mm -hmm. which none of these companies, I mean, they say they care, but when you look at the amount of resources being put, it's purely minuscule, right? And so when there's a lot of you know PR on something like that, it, it has a huge effect um, internally as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 sort of uh, what. Well, Timni, uh, you, you mentioned the the scene from Code of Bias that deals with uh, kind of facial recognition recognition in the kind of housing uh, portion. I believe is in in Brooklyn, and uh, what, what struck me about that, which seems to be a common theme of Code of Bias and, and other work in this space, is that there's often a major gulf between the individuals uh, who are developing and deploying technology and the first communities that oftentimes are impacted by this technology. I believe it was Kathy O'Neill in the, in the film who basically points out that this is an issue of uh, a major power uh, imbalance. So Meredith, I'd love to hear from you on this. How, how can we uh, bridge that, that divide? Because it seems like oftentimes uh, you have a community that doesn't have a voice in the development and deployment of technology. And, and oftentimes the individuals who are actually creating it are never actually impacted by it. So even if you think about it from an employment standpoint of how it's being utilized, let's say facial recognition to, to do job interviews, which is uh, something that, that is happening, uh, it's oftentimes not the white collar type of worker who is, uh, is going to have that deployed on them. So one of the things that I write about is an idea that I call techno chauvinism the idea that technology is superior, that technological solutions are superior to others. Um, and what I would argue is that instead of a techno-chauvinist pro-technology all the time bias, we should ask what is the right tool for the task, right? Sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer. Sometimes it's not, it's not a competition. So I think what happens in uh, inside technology companies is that there is this techno chauvinist mindset, this idea that, okay, we're going to privilege the technological solution and we're going to privilege the knowledge of the people who create the technology, right? And so people who are going to be affected by the technology do not have a seat at the table. Uh, so that's why the voices in the film of the folks who live in the housing project where they tried to roll out facial recognition uh, are so powerful because these tenants fought back and they said, this is not an appropriate technology. Uh, we don't want this in our houses. And they were absolutely right, by the way, to object yeah. to it. So I think what we need to do is we need to start by giving a wider variety of people a seat at the table. We need more diverse teams creating technology. And we also need technologists to value multiple ways of thinking. We need them to value intersectionality. Mm -hmm. uh, we need them to talk to people in affected communities as they're designing technology. So as part of the product design process, 
you know, go out and talk to the people who are going to not just be the uh, consumers, the users, uh, but the people who say are going to be evaluated by uh, automated hiring uh, interview systems, right? So using, uh, you know, using facial recognition and hiring is a pretty bad idea. So now, uh, since looking at the time, we, we want to get to some of the hopeful parts of this or, or potential solutions. So when we look at this issue of uh, AI bias, algorithmic bias, uh, is this something that can be solved? I mean, Meredith, you, you talk about how our own kind of bias that we would have as, as individuals uh, gets kind of embedded into this this system. So we'd love to hear from, from both of you about if this can be solved and if so, what we can, can do moving forward. So Meredith, Timmy, you want to take this one? Or Timmy, yeah. Okay, so I'll quickly say, you know, just to follow up on what Meredith um, was saying, there is a, in the tech industry, um, so now uh, this has become something that a lot of people mm -hmm. know about, uh, you know, algorithmic fairness, and it's become a whole field that people from, uh, a lot of people are working on. Now, the the there is a kind of a rush to develop a solution and so it's like debiasing something or a, a, an algorithmic solution to the algorithmic bias problem right and i'm not saying you know sometimes there are techniques that need to be it, it doesn't mean that there should be no you know algorithmic kind of um mitigations right mm -hmm. but there that's just the rush because that is the hierarchy of knowledge that we're operating in so what, what we need is a, a much more foundational change. And when I think about it, honestly, I do think it's it definitely there's um, hope. I mean, I, I, I'd be too much of a pessimist if I thought that, you know, it wasn't. But in my opinion, there's many things that need to be done. Like there's a huge foundational shift in thinking that needs to be done um, in terms of cross-disciplinary work and who is at the table and who's not. I even, there's a, a paper I wrote with a, a historian where we say that there should be a discipline on data, just data itself, you know, um, and with a, an interdisciplinary sort of a specialty on that. So some specifics that we give, but at the same time, um, it's not also just it's not just about like racial and, and gender diversity into a specific structure that is that can be sexist and racist right because the you know women in power can be sexist and black people in power can be racist so there needs to be a shift in thinking and and a shift in structure a structural shift and i don't think that comes easy because when that structural shift is something that will really hit um people in privilege mm -hmm. in some way um they're gonna fight back or or they don't they might not have an incentive to just you know so there needs to be a huge push for this kind of structural um change uh, i mean there i can say a lot more about that but i that's Definitely. that's how i think about this well now we're actually kind of nearing our our final question but to to end us hopefully on a high note and then i'll kick it over to shalini uh for for a little bit of special closing that we're going to have but Meredith, I'll, I'll start with you. And then actually, uh, Timni, uh, uh, as well, uh, if you can uh, tell people where they can continue to follow up with your work, stay in touch with you, uh, get involved more of this larger, larger responsible tech movement. Um, the question is, uh, especially since 2020 has been a dumpster fire of a year, uh, what are you most hopeful for, uh, especially with, with everything that you do? Uh, because a lot of times it can seem like a Black Mirror episode. Shalini, you mentioned your, your sci-fi kind of kind of roots. Um, so Meredith, we'll start with you. What are you looking at everything, everything you, you do, people you're in touch with? What are you most uh, hopeful and optimistic about? I am most hopeful and optimistic about the fact that this film is out in the world. <laughs> that is, is hands down the highlight of, uh, of recent, uh, you know, recent months. I... Uh, so the film is out, the election is over. I, there is, I, I, I pray there is hope on the horizon. I, resources that I turn to uh, when I have to think about, okay, what are the technology, uh, you know, where, where is the hope in mm -hmm. the technological world? I have a couple of places that I turn. Uh, one is the new uh, discipline of public interest technology. 
Uh, so this is uh, people creating technology in the public interest. It's not necessarily a technology that's going to scale. It's not necessarily a technology that's going to make a bajillion dollars. It's just technology that's going to make people's lives better. Uh, I love uh, recently the COVID tracking project. They're doing a really amazing job of gathering COVID data from all of the states and centralizing it and making it available and interpreting it uh, so that anybody can understand what is going on with the COVID pandemic and understand the scale of the devastation. Mm -hmm. uh, I would again point to the Algorithmic Justice League. I would point to Black and AI. Uh, I would point to uh, Kathy O'Neill's work uh, with Orca. Uh, there is also uh, a woman named Ruman Chowdhury who is doing a new platform called Parity that is a platform for uh, evaluating algorithms. Uh, and I am inspired by a lot of work going on in the algorithmic fairness community. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it is the same old, same old, but some of it is uh, is truly groundbreaking. So I think there is there's definitely hope on the horizon. I'm glad. And Meredith, if people want to stay in touch with you, uh, where do you where where would you like them to go? I am always available at MeredithBroussard.com, and I'm at Mayor Broussard on Twitter. Terrific. Tim Neat, uh, love to hear about uh, your optimistic uh, you know, out outlook. I'm so happy that Meredith <laughs> went first because I'm going to say that. You know, I'm gonna, I, I want to start by saying this week has been particularly difficult for me because I'm, um, I'm an Eritrean ethnically who was born and raised in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is sliding into a very dangerous civil war that has just gotten completely out of hand. So, you know, on top of everything else, like that, just seeing that this year has been difficult because what I was super hopeful, um, you know, I had a lot of hope before that because, for example, one of the things we did was we had convinced a major international AI conference to be held in an um, African country for the first time. And that was going to be in Ethiopia in April. And because of COVID, we weren't able to do it. But then so seeing this now it has been devastating. But um, I am inspired by everything that Meredith um, just um, talked about. One of the organizations I would add is also Data for Black Lives. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times what happens in this space it's kind of like international development all over again, where a bunch of white people, especially white men, sit around and talk about black people and how they can help them. And it's the most just uh, irritating thing for me. So this happens with NGOs. They're all like well paid, you know, and all that. And you go to a, a conference and they're all talking about Somalia and there's not a single Somalian in there. Right. So it's something like that. And what Shalini has done is the complete opposite of that and centering the voices of the people who are affected by this and also the people at the forefront of working on this. And that is extremely inspiring because that's what we need to continue to do. And, and it, it's not, you know, I don't believe in this, in this whole global change. It's, it's each of us have to work on local change because local change is much harder because you, you can actually achieve something and, um, and uh, measure what you have achieved, right? And so, and then it percolates, right? So um, what Charlene was saying about laws, like local laws percolate and then they kind of spread, right? And so each of us kind of advocating in our local system uh, is what I'm inspired by. And so, yes. And so coded bias has been, has been a, a, a highlight. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm amazed by what it has accomplished and um, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's watching it. All of the people who haven't, who didn't know anything about, you know, ethics or anything like that are watching it. They're having watch parties, screening it. And so I'm super inspired by that. And if you want to follow me, I'll, I'm at Twitter. Uh, I'm Timneeth Gabru at Twitter. Uh, my website is not super up to date, but blackandai.org for Black and AI related stuff. And you can also uh, follow Black and AI at Twitter. And we have a Facebook page as well. So we try to highlight things that are relevant in the Black and AI community. Thanks so much to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Shalini, Meredith, and Tim Neat's wisdom and witness. The live stream may be over, but there are many ways each of us can take 
action. And so Jess and I, like usual, are going to debrief our biggest takeaways from the live stream, including some specific actions that listeners can take and some resources to continue the conversation. Dylan, it's been a few months since we first saw Coded Bias come out at the Human Rights Watch Festival. And I remember this was such an interesting time just because it was June and um, the world was kind of in chaos at the time. And this movie was just such a bright spot in that month for us because we had the opportunity to interview Deb Raji and it was right after we had gotten off an interview with uh, Tim Neat and we were introduced to Shalini online and then we went and watched this film in this uh, online room and we're chatting with all these hundreds of other people who were at the live Q&A and it was just this really amazing feeling of community and people who are just really uh, energized around the topics that were introduced and explored in this film. And hearing them all talk about this again in the panel with All Tech is Human was just an amazing reminder of the motivation that we all felt in that first round a few months ago. So Dylan, now that we are reinvigorated, what were some of the things that stood out to you in this conversation? You know, just as I was listening to this conversation, what I was really struck by was just how groundbreaking and important this film is and uh, the story that gets told throughout it. It really is talking about what artificial intelligence technologies have to do with civil rights. And I think that that's a really live question. Like, what is the future of AI tech? Um, not just the technologies themselves, but the culture around it and how is that going to interplay like when we look back in 50 years and look back at this period in American history and global history what are we going to be able to say about the impact that uh, artificial intelligence tech and this new zenith of tech that we're seeing in this age of information how is that going to have interplayed with civil rights and I think that's still a really live question so that's what I'm sitting with after this conversation how about you Jess what were you struck by most in this conversation Dylan I think some of the things that struck me in this conversation were actually things that really stood out to me when I watched the film originally too and I think it is around this notion of activism and they talked a lot about this in the conversation with David of All Tech is Human. And also in the movie, I was surprised to see that there are activists that are advocating for the rights of people, whether it's civil rights or just human rights in general. And they're all over the world. And there's people who are just incredibly passionate about this work that exist outside of the circles that we've found ourselves in as academics and also just in the AI ethics and responsible tech space. And it's interesting because I feel like we hear conversations like this, and, and this is something you and I have talked about before, Dylan, on this show. There's a lot of stuff that comes up over and over and over again that's kind of just like a part of the dialogue of responsible tech. You know, like, we need to have more diverse teams. We need to educate computer scientists. We need to make legislation. And yes, all those things are true, but then we always ask to each other, like, so what? what's next, right? Like, what what are we gonna do with all that? And I, I really appreciated some of the subtleties that um, Timney and Meredith brought into the conversation really about some of the specifics that they're seeing on the ground and that they were seeing throughout the creation of this documentary. And I think one of the things that stood out to me that uh, Tim Newt said was that there needs to be a structural shift in this field. And when I say field, I'm just going to talk about AI right now, but we could talk about technology in general. And I think that as great as it is that we have these activists who are just really, really passionate about these issues, and I mean, even people like you and me who want to talk about these things constantly, that isn't always the case for the modern general person in tech. And so it's not just about getting more people who are activists at the table, but it's actually turning everybody who's already at the table into maybe not necessarily activists, but people who will at least advocate for some of these issues just in the regular day-to-day -day business. 
Yeah, and that's what I love about the work of these scholars that uh, were in this conversation. And this is something that they say again and again and again. It's something that Joy says again and, and Deb, Raji, and all, all the folks right, who are part of this movement to, to make the structural change happens, they keep saying, you know, it's not just the surface level stuff that needs to change. It's the deep rooted systems of oppression, which includes racism and sexism and all the other isms um, that we need to start addressing, right? And But for me, it's like, it's, it's tough to think about because and again, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. And, uh, you know, these these folks, the folks that were on the show today know it better than anyone that like this kind of systemic change, this deep rooted change takes so much intentionality and work. And it's just day after day of like, you know, 12 to 14 hour days of just making it happen because you're pulling and pushing against a tide of so many people who don't want systematic change, right? Like, or systemic change. There are reasons why these systems exist. And that's what we keep seeing, right? It's like every time there is something like Joy's story, you know, there are other stories that are happening at the same time of when the opposite's happening, right? Like Joy's work is, at least in this film, right? It exists because there's something that is, you know, unconstitutional, that is unethical, that is... Uh, totally racist happening in our technological space. And that's why she has to do the work that she has to do. And for me, I'm just like, oh my God, that's that's just, it's a lot. It's very overwhelming. And so I think I do take a more like pessimistic attitude. And I'm so, I'm like, I'm so grateful for um, these folks for when they name their hope at the end, because I think that's so important to, to name and then to keep naming what that hope is is because it's that hope that is going to keep driving us forward and it's that celebration in addition to that anger that's going to allow us to really transform these systems that are so deep-rooted even deep-rooted in our culture not just in our like economy right it's like in within each of us so the work that needs to be done is just it's immense Yes, there will always be more work to be done, but for now, the conversation does not stop here. So for each of these episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, if you're new around here, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. For each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of action items that we have curated from the guest speakers, as well as annotated resources and some selected notes that were mentioned by the guests during the live stream. Different ways to get involved, relevant books, media, podcasts, publications, talks, anything and everything, you name it, it's there. So go check it out. As Jess just mentioned, for more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at radicalai.org slash continue the conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, as always, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod, and we'll catch you on Wednesday for our weekly episodes. As always, stay radical.